You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue, listen to some of the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Alan last week where we discussed a couple of new research papers, uh, of which one was about the footprint of CTAs in the markets, as well as some of the key takeaways from our recent conversations with pretty much all of the largest and best CTAs in the world, which you can find in the Top Traders Unplugged series. Also, if you did miss the Wednesday episode, I really would encourage you to listen to this midweek conversation with David Dole, where we dive into a new topic that I personally find fascinating and which David calls Galactic Macro, and where we try to keep a very open mind to all of the recent releases of information from the Pentagon and U.S. military about encounters uh, that they have had with unidentified objects, but also then try to see if there could be made an investment case for this development, hence the new term galactic macro. Anyways, I encourage you to listen to um, as many episodes as you can handle once you finish listening to Rob and me today. Anyway, Rob, good to be back with you. Um, so much continues to happen between our conversations. How are you doing, my friend? Yeah, someone actually messaged me and said, why is it whenever you go on, on the podcast, always, you always talk about the, the weather when Neil's asked how it's going. I'm like, well, I'm English. That's what we do. You know, in, in a kind of awkward conversational situation, we just reach for the weather. So I can tell you it's, it's dark, it's cold, it's raining. Uh, and yeah, summer can't come soon enough. All right. Well, you could move to another country, Rob. Then you don't have to talk about the weather, I guess. But anyways, that would be boring, of course. That would be boring. Yeah. Anyways, we have, as I always say, and I really do mean it, we have a wonderful lineup of questions and topics. Um, but before we do that, normally I would run through some kind of market wrap. But frankly, uh, we're recording two days early this week. Uh, and that's because of my crazy uh, travel schedule at the moment. So I don't have anything kind of detailed uh, that I'm sure you haven't already read in the uh, news. Um, so instead, what I asked Rob to do was to maybe give his his views and observations, um, what he's taken away from the episodes that he had listened to so far in the series with the CTAs. Because, you know, even for myself, where I, I would say I know, I know most of the managers, there has actually been a few surprises along the way. So anyways, Rob, I'd love to hear your kind of overall thoughts uh, on what you've listened to so far. Yeah, it's a really it's an amazing series, I have to say. It's really good. Um, and um, I think one of the I things I found most interesting is coming back to people whose view, who actually I know very well. So like Russell Korganaga, who actually I used to work with AHL, um, Katie Kaminsky, um, you know, Marty Luck from Aspect, just, just a sort of... Some random examples of people I know quite well, actually. Um, but I haven't kind of heard their views for many years. And it's sort of interesting to see how people's views kind of develop and change over time. Um, I mean, we all, you know, so for example, if I just think of myself, then I used to have a, a more kind of, um, I'd be more keen on a sort of fitting my trading system, whereas now I try and avoid fitting completely. Just That's just an example. So, so yeah, I would, I would say even if you've heard, say, Kate, you know, the episodes that you've done with Katie in the past, for example, come back and listen to them again with Marty you know he's, he's been on the podcast before um but but come back and listen to them because um you know it's uh it's really interesting especially you know given the the developments both in the markets last year but also developments in things like AI and technology generally um you know th there's always a uh, there's always new stuff to hear there yeah and I think that's also um kind of a little bit what what I wouldn't say surprised me but but that I haven't thought about too much and that is just how we as managers evolve because if you're when you're in it day by day you don't really see the evolution but as you rightly say when you hear people speak a few years after you've heard them last time you can see that something has evolved in their in their views in their 
systems in the way they, even the way they build their businesses. I mean, there's a lot more solution providers than I kind of thought there would be uh, in in our space now. Yeah, no, so so I agree. Anything that stood out to you since we last spoke a few weeks ago in the world, in the markets, anything that uh, that you recall from that period? Yeah, so it's been a been an interesting year so far, actually. So if I'm just looking at my own kind of performance, so the first kind of month or so, January is pretty flat. Uh, but actually in, in February um, and now into March, I made a little bit of money. So I'm actually up about um, just under 4% for the year, which is, you know, is all right. So let's see, see how that goes. Uh, obviously, that's not as spectacular as last year's performance at the same time. It's still pretty good. Uh, just looking at the... Um, where, where that performance came from. So um, actually, it's not an obvious kind of pattern. So my, my best market was actually the VIX. Uh, bubble, I did pretty well in the bubble as well. Uh, I did, did made some money in CAC, made some money in, in lean hogs. Uh, and then on the downside, I lost money in, in US 20 years. Uh, obviously, interest interest rates have been, you know, used to be that the bond market was the boring place, right? But, but you know, that's no longer the case. Uh, so I think, you know, I think yeah, yesterday, the day before, actually, there's some pretty sizable moves in interest rates, um, futures coming up on my kind of market monitor report. So uh, so, so definitely not a dull place in, in the bond markets, that's for sure. Um, if I look at um, kind of how sort of mark, you know, how um, I'm positioned sort of going forward. Um, so the risk remains still quite low, actually, probably running at about somewhere between a third and a half of my kind of typical target level. Actually, I do still have more risk in the bond market than anywhere else, followed by the equity market and then the agriculturals. So, you know, it's, I'm still, it still looks like I'm kind of making a, a sort of big kind of, what you might call factor one, factor two bet. Um, where factor one is, you know, equity market risk and factor two is, is uh, interest rate risk. That that comes from, by the way, in case people aren't familiar with that terminology, um, what you do is, just to get really geeky for a second, uh, if you take the, the correlation matrix of all the assets you're trading and you do an eigenvector decomposition, the first two eigenvectors that normally come out are something that's basically equity market risk and something that's interest rate risk, just in case people wondering why we're suddenly coming up with the, these terms factor one or factor two. Um, so I'm actually still short bonds. Um and that's my, my biggest position, actually. Um, I'm also short. So I'm short US 20 and short buns. I'm short VIX, which obviously is a kind of, those are all, I would say, kind of pro-risk bets, right? So I'm betting the interest rates are going to rise and I'm betting that the volatility in equity is going to fall. So that's kind of a pro-risk bet. Um, and then on the long side, I'm long CAC, I'm long Euro stocks, um, I'm long Nikkei. So those are all, again, pro-risk bets. Um, but I've got some other positions in there, so I'm I'm long soy meal, I'm short hogs, you know, um, I'm short gas. Um, I am, uh, where am I doing in gold and silver? Uh, let's have a look. Um, I'm short short gold and silver as well. So you know, there's kind of a big a big factor one pro pro risk interest rates falling bet there, but but not a massive one. Um, and you know, there's also some other things in there, so it's there is a bit of diversification. Sure. Well, we'll we'll kind of come back to this, circle back to this once we get to your topics, um, and so so that'll be interesting. You know, just to uh, talk very very briefly about March so far. Uh, obviously, from a trend following perspective, people have already, I'm sure, worked it out from your comments. It's very similar to uh, what we saw in in February and where we left off in February. Those kind of trends are extending to some uh, degree, in particular in interest rates still. Uh, the which has been good for 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 our industry so far. So the B top fifty index, and this would be as of mm, probably Tuesday or maybe a Tuesday or Wednesday this week. I'm not sure, but it was up one point eight one percent, up three point one four percent for the year already. Stock and CTA index up two more than two percent, uh, and up three point four four percent already. And this year, and the trend index up two and a half so far this month, up almost three for the year. And the short-term traders index uh, up 72 basis points for the month and up 37 basis points for the year. And what's interesting about this, to some degree, uh, just because we talked about the term crisis alpha already, is that, of course, CTAs are doing perfectly well and there's absolutely no crisis in the market. So, uh, So last year we made money during a crisis. This year we are making money without a crisis. So... 
yeah, I mean, again, I, th- I just think it shows the wonderful adaptability of this uh, strategy. Um, equities are up slightly for the month so far and bonds are down slightly. Anyways, we have quite a few questions that came in. We'll do our very best to address as, as many of them, but also as much of them, because it's it's actually not just one question people are sending in. It's usually two or three now, uh, and that's fine. That's great. We appreciate it. But it also means we sometimes have to be a little bit um, you know, clinical in terms of how we approach them. Anyways, one that came in um, that I thought maybe you can um, quickly deal with is from Gene. Gene writes in, found the testing discussion with Richard very interesting, but the line between overfitting and underfitting is still a bit unclear to me. If backtesting on decades of data shows the trend following with a specific market, say such such as gold, makes more money with a longer look back, but another market, such as gasoline, makes more money with a shorter look back. Would it be overfitting to use a different look back for each market? So actually, I think I'm just going to stop it here because the rest are just kind of more or less the, the same. But because it's a principal question, which is a good one, by the way, um, because I think there are different ways, which we've actually in the series, and, and, and sometimes I forget uh, which conversation it is. I think it's the one that's coming out with Winton soon, where we address this point. So so stay tuned to that gene as well. But let's hear what um, what Rob has to say about so this. You've got Mr. Harding coming on then, do you, Niels? No, we have uh, Simon Jutes, uh, who's the co-chief investment officer. Yeah, cool. Interesting. So I guess there's kind of two ways of thinking about this. One is a kind of ideological view, and one is a kind of statistician's view. So one ideological view is that, that you actually do as a minimum amount of fitting as possible. Um, and then you treat all markets the same, um, and you, you basically, you know, so for example, in, in my fitting, I treat all markets the same. Um, and, um, I, with the exception I make is trading costs. So if an, an instrument's particularly expensive to trade, I won't use the shorter look backs on that, but that's not because I think they're necessarily worse before costs. It means I think because the costs, I'm basically assuming that the pre-cost performance is the same and therefore after costs, I know they're going to be terrible. So I just, I just don't use them. Um, so that's one way of doing it. And that's, to be honest, that's a perfectly valid kind of approach to life. Um, and it certainly makes your life a lot easier because you, you have to do a lot, a lot less work. Um, now I would kind of describe myself as kind of ideological plus a bit of kind of, okay, I am prepared to move away from that ideological position if there is strong enough statistical evidence for it. And also ideally some kind of economic justification. Now the economic justification as to why a particular instrument should show faster trends than another one is difficult to be honest and it's also difficult to say why those patterns should persist over time um because and that's because you know you might say oh well everyone knows that you know fx traders are, are more kind of gun gun happy than equity traders therefore there should be shorter trends in the fx space i mean that's not a very compelling argument anyway there's not really any evidence as to why that should be the case and even if it was the case why should that particular pattern persist you know for example having said that um if there is extremely strong compelling statistical evidence as to why one trend is better than another then i would be prepared to at least look at it not everyone would a lot of people would say you know what just don't do any fitting but that's fine as i've said but i'm prepared to at least look at it now the problem is that you and this is a general kind of statement about fitting generally you always need a lot more data than you think. So you may think multiple decades of data is enough. And actually, that is enough to make certain kinds of decisions and not others. Um, and without getting too technical, it's to do with this kind of um, statistical properties of the of the sort of distributions of returns that you're either looking at or comparing against each other. So if you have, um, for example, um, two you know, trend-following rules for a particular instrument, the chances that one's going to be significantly better than the other to such an extent, even with multiple decades of data, are actually quite small. It's quite difficult to find a statistically significant difference between, you know, performance of fast lookback and performance of slow lookback across different instruments. Um, and generally speaking, the amount you see of it is exactly what you'd expect by luck. Um, so if you, some, most people are probably familiar with the concept of a p-value. So if you set a p-value of 0.05, that means that you're looking for less than a 5% chance the finding you're looking for is just pure luck. But if you've got 100 instruments in your portfolio, 
you're going to find five where you see that distinction just by fluke anyway. So, you know, if you see like 50 and they're all highly significant, much more significant than 0.05, then there may be something going on there. But if most the most chances are you're going to see five or six and they're going to be significant, you know, 0.03, 0.04, well, that's just what you'd expect by luck anyway. Um, and generally speaking, whenever I've done this exercise, with a couple of exceptions, that's pretty much what I've seen. So I'd say on balance, you know, don't do this, either ideologically or it's unlikely the evidence is there. Having said that, there are cases where it does look like there is evidence that, for example, in equities in particular, faster trend following strategies don't seem to work so well, you know, and they've not worked since about 1990, for example. But that, that's, you know, you can, and you can maybe pull out one or two isolated cases like that. So, for example, with, with the carry system, again, this assets, it seems to work well in one set of asset classes and not other, another set of asset classes. So, you know, if you're going to go down this route, then I wouldn't do it on individual markets. I might consider it on asset classes, but I, this is not for the faint-hearted. You really need to have a really good, solid understanding of statistical, you know, evidence and testing. And um, as I said, the fact there's no kind of like no economic justification as to why this should be the case would also concern me. Yeah, well, I think that's a that's a great answer, and and definitely I think we come across both camps uh, in terms of how they uh, select their parameters depending on uh, markets and sectors. And so the other thing I, we did pick up for sure in the conversations we just uh, had uh, was this point that you also made, Rob, and that is some markets are simply either not as liquid or more expensive in general to trade and then people slow down the uh the look back uh and or the speed of the trend and so that's exactly what you uh point out so hopefully that was a helpful gene and, and and everyone else dealing with this particular uh question the next one is from james i'm a big fan of your podcast i have two questions for you trailing slash atr stops used in moving average systems what type of stops are commonly used in moving average systems? Question mark. I noted instances trailing ATR stops are triggered, but the buy condition is still met. Um, okay, maybe above certain moving averages. Uh, if uh, we do use these kind of stops, what are the common rules for re-entry? Okay, so that's question number one. Maybe we can deal with that first. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't actually use a system like this, but I have written a book that describes a system like this. Um, and what I do in that book is say, well, okay, let's suppose you get stopped out. Let's say it's a long position. You go into the long position on the moving average, say. You get stopped out, but the moving average is still long, okay, which can happen. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like stops, because you end up with this inconsistency and you have to make sure you calibrate the size of your stop to the length of your moving average. Otherwise, you know, you get weird things going on. So what I do, what I say in my book is, and this is what I would do if I was trading that kind of system, is basically to say, don't do anything until the moving average has actually changed sign. So when the moving average then indicates you should go short, at that point go short, uh, and obviously then re, re, you know, replace a new stock. Um, so so that that's how I would do it. I mean, I don't really see any other way of doing it, to be honest. I mean, it makes no sense to go along in the moving average get out of the stop and then go back in again straight away. I mean, it doesn't make, you know, mechanically you're just doing two trades. I mean, what, what's the point of that? Um, some people might make the system more complicated and add another indicator to indicate when they go back in again. But I mean, that's probably back to overfitting, to be honest, from my perspective. But but Niels, I don't know if you've got more familiarity with these kinds of systems than I do. So No, funny enough, I've never actually uh, used moving average systems in my uh, career. So uh, I don't really have anything to to add to your uh, to your thoughts there. So uh, so that's fine. I'm going to skip over the next question, James, just because we have more questions that we want to get to. Uh, the next one is from Chris. I was curious when you run a backtest, how far uh, back uh, you go. I know that the default answer is as far as you can, but um, what about scenarios where some contracts started in 1980s and others in the 90s and something, some of them in the noughts? I say one third of your initial allocation, uh, capital allocation started trading in each decade. Uh, do you just run one third risk in the 80s, two thirds in the 90s and full risk in the noughts? Any thoughts? You're the master of backtest, Rob. Okay, so what, what I do is is may sound a bit complicated, but, but basically within my system, um, I have essentially a continuous process that's adjusting for the number of markets that I'm 
trading and also the, the the weights to those markets and also the kind of amount of leverage I need to apply to hit my risk target. So let's take a simple example. Suppose you start off with your data set in, say, 1970, and you've got one market you're trading. Let's say it's corn, corn futures. I think my data for them goes back to then. Um, so then you'd have 100% um, of your capital allocated to corn, and you'd be applying leverage of one, okay, to hit your risk target because, you know, you'd be running corn at, say, a 20% risk target. You're on your system overall to get to 20% to risk target. The ratio of those two numbers is one. It's dead, dead simple. Um, a few years later, I suppose that another market arrives, uh, like, I don't know, cable, uh, GBP, USD, FX. Um, so now, and let's say for the sake of argument, you keep things really simple and you allocate half your capital to cable and half to corn. You know, there are more, clearly more complex ways of doing it, but let's just assume that's what you do for the time being. Now, you've got two markets in your portfolio. If you actually look at the um, amount of risk that generates, well, it's probably safe to assume that those things have got a correlation of about zero. And that means that your the risk you'll actually be in, in getting, assuming that you can forecast risk perfectly, which you can't, but you can get pretty close, um, would be 20% divided by the square root of two, uh, which is, what, 14%, something like that. So what you need to do is basically apply additional leverage to to your positions to get back up to the risk target you want to, to hit. And this actually relates to something that we'll talk about at the end of the episode as well, in case people are interested in hearing that. So the advantage of this approach is I can keep stuffing more and more markets in over time, and potentially even taking markets away, but generally speaking, in a backtest, you're just adding markets. And the, the, the amount of, and, and I've got a process for allocating weights to those, and then basically this this number, and I call it the IDM, the Instrument Diversification Multiplier, that will then automatically adjust to give me the appropriate amount of risk that I need. Um, so, you know, to think, to say, to, that that's obviously not really an answer to the question because, but I guess to try and answer it in, in framing it in the terms of the question, essentially I'm trading all of my capital in the 1970s. I'm trading all of my capital in the 1980s and so on and so forth. But what I'm doing in each of those decades then is is kind of, um, you know, allocating that capital between whatever instruments I have to trade with at the time and then leveraging my portfolio appropriately to hit my risk target given given the correlation of, of those subsystems. Now, then Carl wrote a small novel when he sent in his questions, um, but I have shared them with you because I don't think necessarily we're going to get to all of them. Um, so first, let me just write uh, or read what Carl wrote. I continue to enjoy your interviews and enjoy the broadening of perspectives that you're sharing. I know it's a lot of work and I want to assure you it's greatly appreciated. So of course, we, we certainly appreciate that uh, feedback. The first couple of questions is about kind of what happens if an FCM goes, so a brokerage firm, uh, a futures brokerage firm, an FCM goes belly up. And of course, this is actually somewhat relevant for the whole industry and why we actually like trading futures. But then actually Carl wrote to me that that you've written, I think he referred to this, you've written about this in one of your books. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it today, but if we are, we're going to have to make it brief. So I don't know if you want to comment on these particular questions. Otherwise, I'll jump to another question. But but do you have a short answer that you want to share on, on this I mean, particular point? The, the short answer is actually that I'm not a lawyer and uh, an expert on regulation and compliance. So any anything I say will almost certainly be, be, be wrong and you shouldn't rely on it. Um, but, you know, um, there, there have been examples of futures brokers going bust and MF Global was a famous example. And that was particularly um, problematic for me because I was working at AHL and Man Group used to own MF Global and they, we were still they were still a big prime broker for us. So, you know, that that potentially we actually managed to manage the risk very well. I think in the end we got away with an extremely small loss, but um, that could have been very nasty for us indeed. So, um, you know, I, I think as a, as a general rule, although it's it's definitely much safer to trade futures with a with an onshore exchange backed by a you know big clearinghouse through a um, a good you know well capitalized well regulated broker than it is to trade I don't know just to take a random example crypto through an offshore exchange you know run by some some people that starts um, with an F starting with an F just as an arbitrary example um, but that doesn't mean to say that that you you know you that there's no way you can ever ever lose lose your or be exposed to counterparty risk. With the futures exchange and the futures broker, of course, of course, there's still 
potentially things that could go wrong. It's just that there are many, many more layers of protection there. But it may be the case that, yeah, ultimately you will get your money back, but not necessarily straight away. But yeah, it's a question that really needs addressing to somebody with a much more detailed knowledge than I do. I completely agree. Um, but I do have actually one little follow-up, which you may know, because um, I think that's more of a kind of factual question. If something happens to the broker you're using and you have open positions in futures, do you know how they get transferred to another brokerage firm? Because your counterpart is essentially the exchange. So is there a mechanical way that they say, okay, well, now the contract's not held with XYZ broker, it's now with ABC broker, but because it's still at the exchange. Do you know happen to know that? My assumption would be that the broker obviously has an account with the exchange with a particular number on it, and that's going to have in it, um, you know, the sort of commingled customer positions. Um, and my, my, my working assumption would be that, that whoever takes over that account, which would be in the short, like on day one, would be would be the administrator, right? Um, they they then would essentially control that account, um, and it just depends on what they want to do. If they want to continue running the operation as a, a going concern, then most likely they wouldn't do anything. You know, they they just let the customers carry on trading. If for some reason they needed to to wind things up, then they'd probably start closing those positions. Um, and I guess if there was a in, a in an FTX type situation. You probably aren't going to want to start closing positions because you, you know, you, you want to reduce the amount of exposure you've got to everybody as fast as possible. But you know, and this is speculation on my part. I think if a you know if a futures broker went under went into administration, the most likely outcome would be that they would be the administrator would try and run it as a going concern, and as a customer, you'd see no difference probably. Right. Okay. But just again to stress, Carl, whatever we've just said now is probably wrong. So you should not rely on anything we just said uh, to be to be frank. Uh, but we're just trying to help here. Anyways, then he uh, moves on. Carl moves on to talking about a book uh, that was just re-released uh, by our friend Andreas Kleno, uh, who released the second edition of Following the Trend. The Following the Trend number one, I had certainly recommended many times for people who wanted to understand what trend following is. Um, got a few bones to pick with Andreas on the second edition, but we'll see if we get to that. Anyways, Carl writes, in reading Andreas Klino's newly released second edition of Following the Trend, an impressive revision and well worth it, by the way, he shares an example of a $10 million account that holds $135 million notional open exposure, $123 million net on pages 99101. When I saw that, my jaw dropped and my chin hit the table. My surprise is not based on experience, but uh, I was surprised nonetheless. It should be noted that he limits risk by using a contract ATR calculation and limits the ATR per position to 0.002 of equity, two tenths of 1%. Uh, so 20 basis points, I guess that's easier to understand. Then he takes every position signaled by his long-short formula in his 80-plus contract investment universe. I was surprised that there is no overall risk budget, such as, uh, for example, limiting the total ATR risk to, say, 20% of equity and ensure total equity never falls below 25% um, of, no- of total notional. So four-part question. What are your thoughts on having a small per position risk of 0.02, so 20 basis point, and then taking all signals across the investment universe without overreaching risk budget? Uh, and uh, and then he asks, is this what Jerry does with his 200 plus contract universe? Question mark. I mean, this is pretty standard, right? So, um, and I just explained the, the way you construct um, a multiple instrument position. Essentially, you, you set a risk target. Let's say it's 25% a year. Uh, actually, what, let's use the same number as Andreas. What was his number? He's got total ATR risk of so, 20% of equity. Yeah, so, okay. so he's using 20 basis points. Yeah, okay. Well, let's let's say you, you're using my units, which would be, say, a 25% annualized standard deviation target. You target your individual positions to that. Um, and, and then you... So that's kind of like your risk budget per position, if you like. Those terms aren't exactly the same. Um, and then you apply, apply a multiplier to get to your overall risk, given that all of these positions are mostly uncorrelated. Um, but the, yeah, there's no, there's no then mechanical way of saying, okay, um, what's the risk of that overall portfolio, you know? Um, and, um, there's the reason, one of the reasons why we do that in our world is that we are basically not like, um, an equity long short manager, for example, who will typically say, I have a 10% 
stand deviation target and I want to hit that every single day because I want those consistent returns. What we're doing instead is saying, okay, well, actually, there's not much going on in the markets like now. So we know we're only going to have, we're not going to have like huge positions everywhere. We're just going to have a certain amount of risk. But you know what? A year, things, times like a year ago when things went absolutely crazy, we want to have much bigger risk on. So we want to allow our risk um, to swing. And, and as you know, mine swings probably by a factor of five or six potentially between, you know, a quiet, a really quiet month and a really insane month. Having said that, I do actually have in my own system some, um, I call it an exogenous risk overlay. Um, and what, what that, one of those things will look at the whole portfolio and look at the portfolio risk. And if the risk is more than, I think it's more than twice my average, at that point, it will step in and start to reduce my positions. But that will only happen like once a, once every couple of years, maybe. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a safety barrier. You know, it's not an, an, a sort of part of the system, which is why I use the, the term exogenous. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's just the way that, you know, because we've got lots of small positions, lots of positions, lots of risk, lots of diversified risk, but each of those positions we want to allow to do their own thing effectively. And then the portfolio risk that comes out of the end is just what it is. You know, it's not something that we, we target, we, we target in the long run. We expect to get a certain amount of all in the long run, but on a day to day or month by month basis, there can be big, big differences in risk. Yeah. Carl goes on to basically try and summarize this, and and what he's saying is that well, if you have eighty positions, and um, you know, and he's re referring this to to the way um, uh, Andreas does it in the book, if you have eighty positions, you're using twenty basis points. That's equal sixteen percent risk. Um, but then when you calculate it as a leverage factor, uh, it it's one hundred and thirty five million on a ten million dollar account. So that's a th uh, or, or one hundred twenty three million. He ca calculated on on, on net on a $10 million account. So that's still, you know, 12 or 13 times leverage. Um, and he's concerned about that. And he's asking also, you know, can a, can a low ATR euro dollar future, you know, conceivably lose 50% overnight, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of questions um, in that, but... Yeah, no, lever no, the thing is about leverage, which obviously is equal to the gross exposure divided by your capital is it's the the simplest risk measure, but also the, the crudest and the worst, and it's the most simplistic. And in fact, and I don't know if this is still the case, but I think it was the, the Swiss um, financial regulators used to limit the amount of gross leverage the particular fund could have before they were registered in Switzerland. This may have changed, and this is quite some time ago now. Um, and they used, to, they used to ask us, what's your leverage? And we, we were like, well, it's a meaningless number, but here, have it. You know, we, 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 we live as a meaningless number. And what, so why is it a meaningless number? Well, imagine if you're a, say, targeting, say, 25% vol. If you're a, say, trading just crypto, um, your leverage factor is going to be about 0 0.5 because crypto vol is roughly 50%. So to target that 50%, you're only going to need half of your capital. So your, your leverage is actually less than one. You're going to have, you know, only, only half your fund is going to be exposed to, to, to the thing you're trading. Um, if, on the other hand, you're trading, yeah, say, front euro dollar contracts, which have a very low risk, um, then your leverage is going to be significantly higher. You know, obviously, a black swan event in crypto will at most wipe out all of you, you know half of your capital if you're structured like that. A black swan event in euro dollar, I mean, let's just say for the sake of argument that you were leveraged, say, five times, say, then a twenty percent drop would wipe out all your capital. So that that's what he's kind of inferring. And you know, if but if if the black swan is really bad, then it's going to destroy your capital. And the size of black swan required will be smaller the amount of leverage you have. That's just maths. Okay, that's just maths. But then we need to say, well, how likely, as he says, how likely is it that a, a euro dollar contract could go down by 50%? How likely is it that a, a crypto could go down by 50%? Well, clearly, at least empirically, you know, crypto going down by 50% has something that's happened. It, you know, it does happen. And, and for some of the, the dodgier coins, it, it's probably happened within minutes. Um, it's never happened for Bitcoin or Ethereum, but, you know, there are crypto coins that's happened. Um, has a kind of major, you know, US um, major interest rate future ever gone down by 50% in, in, a, in less than a day? No. Could it happen? It's, I mean, it's it's extremely unlikely, but not impossible. But can I can I interrupt you here, Rob? Because I think this is interesting. Because to, to some extent, this, this touches on this ongoing debate uh, you know, static position sizing, uh, dynamic position sizing, and and I will just just to be sure that Carl understands here that if you have a extremely low market 
volatility for a while, such as we did have in the in short-term interest rate contracts for, for many years, actually, you can, if you don't take this into account, you can end up with very large position notionally. And if, and the markets don't have to move 50% for you to be blown out, because if you have huge positions, and if there's one contract that literally can move dramatically overnight, that is short-term interest rates, because it's like you're either, you know, the Fed is either going to be 50 basis points or 250 basis points. You have no control. And once the market believes that it's one or the other, it will go to that price pretty quickly. So you have to be incredibly cautious is just what I wanted to say. Uh, And I think this is also why those who do advocate for using static position sizing, they don't use the total account size as their AUM. They use closed equity. So they have a bit of a buffer to, to some extent because they're basing their calculations on a lower amount than your total account size, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I just wanted to put, put that in there, Carl, so you fully understand that not everything you read, even if it comes from Andreas, is something you can just you know, use without thinking about it and actually understand, understanding the risks. So that, that, yeah, so that figure of, was it 13 times leverage or something like that? Um, Notionally, that w- yeah. Yeah, so I would not, that would not be atypical for a, 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 you know, a fund that has interest rate futures and, you know, things like two-year bond futures in it and so on and so forth. Now, actually, I think there's probably six pages in my new book about this specific problem. So I just throw that in there. But but very briefly, there are a few things you can do if you are concerned about about leverage. It's actually I just so I just actually looked at my own leverage. It's currently currently running at one one point seven five across my whole portfolio. So um, and that that's one of one of the, so there's a there's a few things you can do. So specifically for say Eurodollar futures, um, and actually this applies also to things like VIX. Don't trade the front contract. Trade further out because generally speaking, the the kind of um, sort of fat tail behavior, if you like. Is, is less likely because you know as you say if the fed's going to change its rates next week then the front euro dollar could move a lot and by the way you make a good point because i've never come across a, a cta that trades the fund contract in short-term interest rates it's usually nine months or beyond and there's a good reason for that i actually yeah. target three i go out as far as i can while it's still liquid which for me is about three years a, a big cta would need to be closer because they they need a bigger position size um the other thing you can do in a more general sense is actually if you are worried about this is actually just to, if you exclude instruments that have relatively low volatility from your portfolio, your leverage will come down. Um, and obviously there's there's a kind of a, a cost to that, if you like, because you're losing the sort of diversification benefit. Um, so because my system has this fancy dynamic optimization, I can kind of, to an extent, overcome that. So what that will mean is, for example, if I'm, say, not trading the US two-year because its risk is too low, and that would result in me getting too much leverage, I can still trade the five-year and my system will automatically put risk into the five-year. Um, so I actually have a, a report that I run that tells me um, whether um, any particular... Int- I, it actually says on the report, markets that are too safe to trade. And, you know, so my... and, and my Because my leverage limit is quite conservative, my, my annualized standard deviation limit is about 5%. So actually, I don't trade, for example, the bubble, the German five-year. I don't trade the three-year BTP. I don't trade Eurodollar. I don't trade Uribor or the, the Fed funds, all JGBs, all Korean three years, all Shats, uh, all US two years, all US three years, all US five years, all US two and five year swaps. So there's actually quite a lot of fixed income that I don't actually put positions on in, although I do use them as part of my, you know, kind of forecasting calculations for my fancy model. So if you are generally really, really concerned about this leverage issue, and I, I, I am actually, which is why I put in this, this thing where I remove markets for very low risk. That is a way of, of doing it. Just be aware that you will lose quite, you lose pretty much the whole of the front end of fixed income. Um, so, you know, which for me personally was, I'm, I'm happy doing it because as an ex fixed income trader, I'm very much aware of, of how, you know, as we said at the start of the podcast, that the boring asset bonds, when it, when it goes, it goes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so I hope, Carl, that those uh, answers were helpful. I know you had a few other comments, but I think we've covered most of it. But I do wanted to ask you a question, Rob, that uh, just brings to mind, um, since you are the backtesting king, as we just established. If you were doing a backtest and you wanted to apply more or less a universal commission rate, 
slippage and commission rate for your backtest, to keep it simple. You know, we like Andreas, we like his work, but I did notice that in his book uh, that he mentioned something about, um, well, I'll do this backtest and I'm going to apply, say, I think it was $2.50 commission um, because things are becoming cheaper, um, and so I can, and, and, and so on and so forth. And then he applies this and he creates this backtest. But I'm thinking, well, hang on, you're not really taking into account the fact that 30 years ago, it didn't cost $2.50. So I thought that was not quite how I would do it. Uh, so I just wanted to hear your view as to how you take into account the fact that probably both slippage and commissions change over time. Uh, yeah, so I mean, actually, I do use exact, precise commission figures for the present day, um, but and, and, and Andreas probably does in his own, in his own actual person, you know, his own work for his own firm. It's only obviously in a book that you want to make things simple for people, and that's completely fine. I think that's a, a perfectly fine approach as long as you explain what you're doing, um, you know, because there are there are some futures that have less for a retail trader where you can pay less than two dollars, and there are others where you pay more than two dollars. So you know, it's. Yeah, it's but also historically, not. it would certainly have been right. Much so more the historical expensive. the right. historical question is obviously what you're asking me. Um, so what I actually do is um, I basically take those present day figures and I adjust them for volatility in the past. Um, so that would mean, for example, when when a market was you know if a market was, and, and I do it with sort of dollar volatility. So um, if you go back far enough to when say the S and P was at four hundred rather than about four thousand. I would basically assume that the dollar cost was one-tenth of what it is now, assuming the volatility is the same. Now, this actually is clearly a simplification as well. And what I'm basically doing is assuming that the risk-adjusted cost in the past is the same as it is now. Now, that is a simplification. And it, it, does, it will indeed lead to almost certainly me underestimating what costs were historically. Now, that's fine if you, I think, if you know you're doing it, because the way I see it, people, and this is a misunderstood concept, I think, a backtest serves different functions. It serves as a test of what happened in the past. For that, you would ideally need, yeah, you'd need to know what the commission was to trade S&P futures in 1982. If you've got that information, obviously, then use it, you know, use that instead. But it, you'd have to be, you know, like an, an AHL that's been trading since 1987 or a DUN that's been trading since you know, even even longer to to have and, and to have been diligently storing that information every day in your database to to have that information. But, you know, most retail traders don't have access to the, to that level. Of, you know, it'd be amazing to know what the slippage was on the 2nd of January 1982 and how much commission I'd have paid as a retail trader. I don't have that. So I have to make this assumption. Um, and by doing that assumption, I'm basically kind of thinking about the other purpose of the backtest, which is telling me, is this a good thing to do in the future? So actually... I don't necessarily care what the trading costs were in 1982 because I'm not trading in 1982, I'm trading now. So for the purposes of working out whether I should trade something now, what really matters is the current risk-adjusted cost, whether that's too high or too low. The only caveat of caution, of course, is this, um, and this relates back to something I said earlier about it looks like, for example, fast equity trend following made money up to about 1990 and then it didn't. What could be happening there was that my backtest costs obviously don't know that equity trading costs have been coming down over time. If I'd actually looked at the net profits using accurate historical trading costs, I probably would have said, you know what, this has never worked. It just looked like it worked pre-1990 because you're underestimating what the trading costs really were back then. Um, if you actually had access to real trading costs, you'd have seen that the apparent extra money you were earning was actually eaten up entirely by costs. And then once the markets became cheaper and efficient in the 1990s, it, it still the effect apparently goes away. Well, in practice, it was never there, but it's just that people couldn't exploit it because the costs were higher than you thought they were. Um, so the, the one thing I'd be re say is re to be really careful of, whether you're using Andreas's system of a fixed commission or my slightly more complex system of um, consistent risk-adjusted costs, if you see something that's made a lot of money in the past and doesn't hasn't done recently, well, probably stay away from that because... That's probably an illusion that you're seeing and not a real thing you could have exploited and made profits from. All right. Then we just uh, today, this morning, received a few more questions from Mathis. Mathis Wright, thank you again uh, to you and your team for producing this wonderful podcast. This is always such a joy to listen to my uh, on my commute to and from work uh, and while I'm working out. I have three 
um, quite different questions that I'd love Rob to uh, answer, or actually to ask Rob, given his wealth of knowledge in running uh, his own portfolio and seeing a very large institutional manager uh, run theirs. Depending on the direction of the episode goes um, and how it fits, I would be grateful for you to answer them. All right, quick uh, one. Operational matter. What is, in your experience, that is your experience, Rob, uh, the optimal uh, moment to roll a contract? How much liquidity do you ideally want in the current versus the forward contract? Equally, uh, Equal liquidity in both, half uh, liquidity in the forward, one quarter, etc. What are your thoughts? I mean, again, this is something I've probably written 20, 25 pages on in my new book, so I could go on at length about this. Yeah, that's um, fine. <laughs> well, to, to, I don't want you to do that because we do have your topic, so I really want yeah, short yeah, I answers. Know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just to answer the question really simply, so um, basically I, I will usually roll as early as I can um, for various reasons, which you'll have to buy my book to find out. Um, and but, but, but I'm dependent, I mean, you know, so for example, if there's 5% of liquidity in a new contract, but that 5% is, you know, thousands and thousands of contracts because it's the S&P. I'll be happy to roll them with just 5%. Um, on the other hand, you know, if it's something that's relatively illiquid and it only does 300 contracts a day anyway, then yeah, I'd probably wait till it was 75% of the way there. So I don't. it's not a fixed percentage for me. It's It d- depends on, I'd like to roll as early as I can, as long as there's sufficient liquidity in the next contract and sufficient depends on, you know, what the contract is. Sure, no, that makes sense. Trading strategies, what are your feelings about adding a defensive uh, betting against volatility strategy to a multi-strat CTA to diversify existing trend-following carry and negative skew-seeking strategies? That is a strategy that allocates more to a market if it has low volatility, either compared to its own past or compared to other assets. Such a strategy is well-documented as working in equities and bonds. In my experience, it also works in commodities, but not in currencies, strangely. The reason it might work is because of limits to leverage slash leverage leverage aversion. I'm not sure why that reason wouldn't apply in currencies. Any quick views on this? So basically, um, the reasons why it will work is because of leverage. So for example, if you just take bonds as an example, if you want a certain amount of return, um, you wouldn't necessarily invest in a high sharp ratio asset if it's got low volatility. Um, So you wouldn't necessarily invest in two-year bonds, you'd want to invest in 10-year bonds instead. Um, Therefore, it makes sense to, if you have access to leverage, as we do as CTAs, as futures traders, it would make sense then to to buy two years and short 10 years, for example. I haven't um, looked at it myself, but you know, there is literature working in the financial markets. I like these kinds of risk premium stroke, you know, um, risk aversion type strategies where you, you basically, you can identify who's on the other side of the trade. There's a good reason why it should work. Um, but yeah, as a, as a, as a strategy that's going to have negative skew and, and high leverage by, by definition, it probably wouldn't be a big part of my portfolio, but, but yeah, worth looking at definitely. Okay, cool. Final question, then we'll go on to your topics. This is about portfolio construction. Why limit trend following to a small part of your portfolio, say 20%, when it has a much higher historic risk-adjusted return and more positive skew than most other investments? It is, is it because it involves leverage and therefore can go to zero while a diversified stock slash bond portfolio will not do that? Sorry, I was so, just about to I mean, there's a kind of cough, a theoretical thing I managed um, side to, to this, it. which I think I discussed actually on my last appearance, maybe on the podcast or the time before. Um, we were looking at the optimal correlation for trend following and it, the kind of in theory it was much higher than the 20%. I think it was, you know, based on some assumptions, it could be anywhere between 50 and 80%. Um, so theoretically, at least, you'd probably never have 100% in trend following. That's that's the first thing to say. Um, most people have less than 50 or 80%, and I myself have le- less than that. Um, and for me personally, it's down to a combination of tax reasons, psychological reasons. Um, you know, I, I even though I know that, that I get a higher return from putting putting my money all into a lot more money into trend following, um, yeah, I, I always have this kind of view that that all the money in my futures account could disappear entirely, you know. And if that happened, I'd still want to be able to pay the bills. So, so um, you know that that's kind of it's that's kind of the reason why I personally don't don't do it. Um, but yeah, other people may have different reasons. I think a, a more pressing point is why you know the average institution that doesn't have to worry about that sort of thing has has you know probably nowhere near twenty percent. Should be you know at least twenty percent. That is the question for sure.
Anyways, we are going to move on to some exciting topics, uh, I have to say. And uh, the first one comes from a new article that uh, you wrote uh, that was published in the FT. So congratulations uh, on that. I'll let you talk about what it's about. But of course, uh, one of the things that really stood out to me was... Um, it seems like you spend the day reading Zero Hedge. What's that all about? Okay, so <laughs> this this uh, so actually this is kind of interesting because obviously last last week Alan talked about the, the the footprint of trend followers, but I hadn't actually got around to listening to that episode before I wrote this article. So this was completely independently. But so um, Alan was talking about how you know various um, sell side researchers like to put out pieces saying things like, "Oh yes, if the market does X, then you know trend followers will." sell 50 billion dollars of stocks and we're all going to die and all this kind of stuff it's all very you know all a bit like this and so but on a similar vein yeah a friend of mine actually um not me i don't actually have a subscription to zero hedge uh, a friend of mine sent me this zero hedge article along similar lines and they've taken some goldman sachs research um and uh, so you know the sell we, we would you you and alan were discussing last week how the sell side research is kind of a bit dodgy now imagine that, but with zero hedge covering it. And you can imagine what this piece is like. So it's, yeah, the, the massive hyperbole saying, oh, yes, if, if the S&P reaches these key pivot levels, then CTAs will dump $220 billion on the market, you know, this kind of stuff. Anyway, so what, obviously, Alan and you spoke about this a lot last week, and there's this excellent piece by Quantica as well. Um, but what I did was kind of just take one specific claim, is this, this $220 billion claim, and basically, just with some simple maths, said, well, okay, how, first of all, how likely is it that that will happen? Um, and secondly, um, you know, if it, what percentage of volume will that be? You know, so would it actually be a significant event? So what I basically did was a kind of single use case of the Quantica methodology, effectively, if you like. Um, so what I did was say, well, okay, first of all, we have to start off with the, the size of the CTA industry. And you guys talked about that a lot last week. Um, I used $300 billion, and that was kind of roughly the figure that Alan was using as well. And we can argue about whether it should be half of that or a bit more than that, but, you know, it seems reasonable. The other thing that, that's kind of, that I had to talk about briefly was, you know, just this idea generally of how you actually do this kind of modeling and where you can get the information from. So you can obviously just build your own simple model, uh, and then you could potentially combine that with public information like, um, you know, things like um, trying to extract from the Commitment to Traders report, for example, what CTO positions might be, Obviously, funds publish reports as well. Um, if it's a usage fund, then it'll have some information in it. So, you know, pulling that information in um, and to, to kind of build your your model of, of flow and position sizing. Um, and then what I said was, okay, um, basically what the article's saying is that, that you'd be going from long 100 roughly to short 100. That's where the $200 billion sell-off comes. Um, and by the way, one of the really naughty things about the Zero Hedge article was they deliberately confounded the S&P 500 and the entire US, the entire global equity market. Um, so the, the Goldman Sachs piece didn't do that, but they kind of reframed it so it made it sound like it was $220 billion just of S&P. If you read the small print of the Goldman Sachs article, it's only $44 billion of S&P. Um, so so I, another, the reason I actually worked that out was I, I said, well, actually, what you can do is um, you can work out Firstly, roughly what the amount of leverage would be that, so imagine if the whole industry was one $300 billion fund and they were trading S&P, you can work out, roughly speaking, what a kind, what sort of position they should have in the S&P. And um, the first thing you need to know is how much leverage they're typically be applying to that position. Uh, and that will come from two main sources. Firstly, it will come from the difference between the fund's target risk and the risk of the instrument you're trading in. So this is exactly back to the conversation about leverage we just had, right? So in, in the S&P's risk, 15 20% is actually pretty close to what the risk would be of, you know, a particular CTA. I think you guys were talking about 15% average risk um, again last week. So I actually was really conservative and or aggressive, if you like. And I said, well, actually, I'm going to assume that CTA risk is, is um, quite much higher, like 25%. And I'm going to assume that equity risk is actually relatively low, like 15%. And the other source of leverage is the thing, again, we talked about earlier, this diversification multiplier. So if you were only trading S&P, you'd have a leverage of, yeah, between one and one and a half. If you're trading a whole bunch of other things as well, again, I was really aggressive and said, well, let's assume you've got a leverage that goes up to four with that additional diversification. 
So I said, well, if that's true, in, and there was the, you know, they had $100 billion, that would mean that the CTA industry as a whole would have 8% of their capital allocated the S&P. Now, given that, you know, not everyone's Jerry and has hundreds of instruments, but, but or me with 150 going on 200, but, but you know, no one's going to, almost no one's going to have, going to be trading, you know, if that concentrated a position in S&P, they're just not going to be doing that. Um, and then I said, well, actually, the real figure is $44 billion, which means that the S&P position, risk weight would be 2%, which actually sounds a lot more plausible. I, I, I can believe that 2% of risk, risk assets across CTAs are in the S&P. That, to me, sounds about the right figure, to be honest. Because, you know, if you say, well, they've probably got 20 25% of their money in, in stocks, they've probably got maybe a quarter of that in US stocks, and that's probably split between, you know, Russell, NASDAQ. Uh, S&P futures. So, so, you know, it seems plausible. And then, then what I did was, was, um, and again, this is something that you guys said last week was actually, if you're vol scaling and obviously famously, not everyone does, but if you're vol scaling, it's very unlikely that the hundred position on the long side would be the same as on the short side. Because obviously if the market does sell off by, I think it's two and a half standard deviations in the Goldman calculations, we really think that equity risk is going to stay exactly the same. It just seems extremely unlikely that we'll have that kind of very gentle glide path downwards without without that happening. Um, so anyway, so I, I basically said, well, the forty-four billion dollar figure is probably about about right on the long on the in terms of position sizing. It's probably a bit aggressive in terms of the sell selling. So you know, more realistically, I think thirty thirty-five billion. Um, and but I said, well, let's let's just assume that the forty-four billion dollar is is correct. Um, and you know that the, they've successfully managed to model the whole CT industry um, despite making quite a few fundamental errors. What actually does that mean? What you know, this is over a month, so forty-four billion dollars sounds like a lot of money. I mean, if you gave me forty-four billion dollars, Niels, now I'd be very appreciative of it. I just just put that out there. Uh, to be honest, forty-four million would would make me smile. Um, and uh, as everyone knows, I, I I think that none of us get paid for this gig. So I think I'm owed some back pay. So anyway, we'll just leave that there. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I said, well, actually, $44 billion over a month of S&P futures trading actually comes out to 0.6%. And spookily, that's exactly the same number that Quantica had last week. Um, and the point, of course, is that 0.6% of volume is just, it's nothing. I mean, you're just going to be lost lost in the wind. So uh, yeah, I... I and that, so that's a nice exercise you could do whenever you see any one of these claims uh, is to sort of do this very simple maths and say, well, actually, that's not really significant. I mean, it's kind of funny to me, right? That first of all, I mean, you you um, you were talking about a, an article where Goldman Sachs was doing this exercise and spooking people. Um, we obviously were talking about, uh, and the other reports, uh, usually Nomura, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, I think was in that article as well. So all the big houses uh, coming out, uh, which of course I think people know already, I completely disagree with this kind of, um, you know, information uh, being presented like that, not least because it's, you know, uh, kind of scaremongering, I think to some extent, but also it's factually wrong. But, you know, it's funny, you never hear them talk about their own asset management, com uh, you know, departments, which manage much more money than the CTAs do. And so it's really disheartening to see this kind of uh, stuff. And then even more so that it's just being, you know, taken by the journalists um, uncritically and published uh, on their uh, news. Speaking of which, I can't really say that this is in the same category, but I had picked this up and you also picked this up and that is uh, that people love to make forecasts about um, which strategies will do best um, in in a particular year as if they know you know uh, psychic or, or, or can tell the future and so uh, we couldn't help both of us noticing that um, the French bank BNP has come out with its predictions for hedge fund strategies for 2023. I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, all I can say is that they believe that multi-strategies will be the winner this year and CTAs will be the losers. And they think that CTAs will probably end up losing 9%. Now, of course, they could be right. We don't know. There's quite a long way until the end of this year. But it is a bit silly, in my opinion, to make these predictions, especially about strategies that are so adaptable like CTAs, because 
what on earth would they base their these assumption on? So um, I don't know if you have anything positive to say about this. I mean, to be fair to to the the French bank, um, they're, they're, it's it's basically based on I believe on a survey of investors. So it's not that they personally have come up with these figures. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. So I, uh, I mean, yeah. yeah. A more interesting question is kind of what what people's beliefs about about performance and in particular whether it is likely to continue or mean revert because that's kind of all this is saying it's so you know people are thinking oh ctas did really well last year well that's bound to mean revert so we'll say they're going to do the worst this year um and um you know multi-strat i think how did multi-strat do okay last year actually i thought they did okay I think they always yeah, yeah. do okay. It's like with this magic box exactly. where you put yeah. markets in and you fire those who don't make money and then you end up so with interestingly, all the good stuff. Like interestingly, they, they believe that Multistrat, which did well last year, I think, will also do well this year. So, you know, who, who knows what's going on there, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you made the correction because I actually uh, had not read the the, the the headline of what I'm looking at right now where it does says investors predict. So I apologize to BNP for... But anyways, it's their survey, and of course, it's based on other people's opinion. But that is a very important point to bring up. Now, we only have a few more minutes uh, left, uh, but we do have a few, maybe one article or so you want to talk about that you think is the most uh, relevant one, um, because you put out some new blog posts, both about diversification, you did uh, one on uh, standard deviation, and you also did... Uh, something about um, our friends over at the uh, Bank of Japan and and the struggles they have at the moment. So is there one of these three that you want to sort of briefly talk? Because people should go, obviously, and read them on your blog post. That's a given. But anything you want to say? Well, let's... It, so I tell you what, as we, we've touched on on um, lever- leverage, actually, and I said earlier that during that conversation that there was a, a concept that I would come back to. So let let me do that. Otherwise, I won't come back to that. Um, so yeah, so so um, diversification across instruments is is you know one of the most powerful um, things about um, you know in finance and particularly in trend following because actually the individual expected performance of any individual instrument is relatively low um, and almost you know close to being not statistically significant. Um, but the benefit you get from combining them is is just is enormous. It's re- much, you know it's really it's really big, um, and there's a really nice. I, I spoke earlier about this concept of, a, of an instrument diversification multiplier, um, and you can think about that effectively because what that's telling you is your, your reduction in, in in risk. But if you think about Sharpe ratios, um, if your risk is reducing and you're then leveraging your portfolio to have the same risk, you're basically multiplying all of your returns by that number. So it's also a measure of expected improvement in return through diversification. Now, so what I what I and there's another way of thinking about this um, actually which some people find more intuitive, which is to think about the number of independent bets in your portfolio. So if you have two instruments in your portfolio with zero correlation, then your the diversification benefit will be the square root of two, because these things go in square roots. But you've got two independent bets in your cor- in your in your portfolio. Um, now you may think, well, let's just keep adding things and and so on and so forth. But Actually, you know, you'll, you'll start to struggle to find things that have got zero correlation quite quickly. You end up adding things with a 0.05 correlation, then 0.1, and so on and so forth. Uh, and what that means is that big portfolios of, of assets or trading strategies typically will have a number of independent bets that, that's less than the number of assets in the portfolio, effectively. Um, so if you take, um, I, t- I took a, in my blog post, I took a long only portfolio and um, it um, basically look, looked at the the uh, number of independent bets in that, and that came out at 23, uh, and that's with 100 assets. So you know, uh, now that's actually quite a lot um, because you'll the diversification benefit of that's going to be the square root of 23, which is just under five. So you can multiply your your returns by five. Now that that's kind of the expected benefit from diversification. But what I then did in this 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 um, blog post was compare that with what you actually get, basically. And in the long only portfolio, what you actually got was it was if, if pretty much that your your sharp ratio doubled. Um, so you know, adding an awful lot of instruments to a portfolio in theory looks great because the correlation's relatively low. Um, but actually, when you actually say, well, how much return do I actually get from this? Um, the answer is, you know, not not as much as you might hope. Now, the interesting thing then is if you take that to to trend following you actually find that the expected diversification benefit is pretty similar. So it comes out something around 20, 25 independent bets. 
Um, but the good news is that the actual real performance uh, is actually higher than that. So you actually end up increasing your sharp by between four and five times, uh, which is incredible, right? I mean, the you know to get that sort of benefit from adding adding instruments to your portfolio is is just incredible. So it's clear the trend following, and it's a combination of the fact that this is all using correlation, which is a linear measure. You know, we have non-linear returns, we have outliers, and so on that we're trying to capture, um, and and the fact that um, you know when you're adding all of those long-only assets, um, you know the correlation looks low, but actually. In practice, there's only a small number of factors driving everything, so there's not really as many independent things going on as as you think about. Going back to the first thing I said about factor one and factor two, um, you know, they kind of explain most of your returns. Um, so, you know, in some ways, you've only got really got, if that was true, you'd only have two independent bets in your portfolio. In practice, um, you know, there's probably about four in a long-only portfolio. But but yeah, in a trend-following portfolio, the benefit is, is much, much higher. So, so, you know, it's not news to say that you should add as many instruments to your portfolio as possible and get that diversification benefit. Um, but, you know, I just thought it would be be interesting to kind of reframe that in a different way and, and sort of uh, present, present some, some, some new evidence to that and try and get that point across. Yeah, no, I think generally speaking, that's also kind of the takeaways from the um, the CTA series. Uh, most managers tend to buy into that. But, uh, you know, there has been a couple of managers who uh, who don't. Um, and, um, we, you know, we've been around for a long time and performed quite well. So it is interesting that you can, uh, kind of one thing is theory, uh, and then looking at the numbers, um, maybe not so much, but, uh, it is a topic that I'm sure we will continue to monitor. And of course, this also relates back to the, you know, quite recent conversations we've had about hedge fund replication as well, right? So the idea that certain ETFs can replicate this huge universe of futures with just a few that they've chosen i don't i know this this is which they're not quite doing this year interestingly enough there's a big return dispersion between that replicator and the index it's replicating uh just to throw that in there uh anyways uh that's a completely different discussion um rob this was uh wonderful delightful as always um and so if you agree with me then can i suggest maybe you go and leave a rating and review for the show on Amazon, Spotify, Apple, wherever you uh, listen to it. It might only take you five minutes, but it really does mean a lot for the show and for more people discovering uh, our conversations every week. And of course, you should also continue to send in your questions uh, to us. Info at toptradersonplug.com is the email. Next week, I think I'm joined by Rich. I, For some reason, I'm a little bit in doubt now that I think about it, but I think it could be Rich next week. could be someone else. I'll have to be a little bit uncertain about that. But in any event, it will be a great one. And um, so do send us your questions ahead of time. Um, and as always, follow us on Twitter. See if uh, you can pick up some information on that as well. From Rob and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, as always, Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.